the truth is, this is a problem that's getting worse. And it's affecting not only the U.S. government, it's affecting your government there in the U.K., a variety of European governments. And this is one instance where I would say that the U.S. is sort of far ahead of its friends and allies across the pond. The U.K. government has been incredibly deficient in, in dealing with these cases, won't talk to families, asks families to stay quiet, don't publicize these issues. You know, this is not a secret. When when someone like Evan Gershkovich or myself or Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe are taken by these governments and then our arrests is, are made public by the state propaganda apparatus in these places, they are doing something that is designed to be outrageous and audacious. So, you know, there's no guidebook or recipe about how to, to handle these things, but ultimately you have to understand as as the employer, as the loved one, as the friends of someone who is being held hostage by another government, what you're trying to do is get your home government to act on their behalf. It's not like there are good places to get arrested working as a journalist overseas, but there are few worse places for an American journalist to get arrested than the Islamic Republic of Iran, a country which partly inaugurated itself in 1979 by taking 66 Americans hostage and holding most of them for 444 days. This week's guest did 100 days longer than that. Jason Rezaian was the Washington Post's Tehran bureau chief when he was arrested and detained in July 2014. In October 2015, he was convicted on preposterous charges of espionage. He was released in January 2016 as part of an exchange of prisoners between the US and Iran. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Jason Rezaian on The Big Interview. Well, I will say, first of all, Jason, uh, welcome to the big interview. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big Monocle fan. I used to write for you guys in a different life. It's been downhill ever since. Um, I did want to start by asking you about your very recent inadvertent contribution to the laws of your great nation, this new legislation which has been introduced to stop tax penalties on Americans detained abroad as you were. Is it right to infer that you learned about these provisions the hard way? Yeah. So when I came back, there was a lot of different things that I had to deal with. My credit score had been decimated because of some bills that didn't get paid on time. You know, I had a lot of medical things that I had to, to deal with. And then once you get through all of that, you, you start thinking about all the ways that, you know, you need to get your life back up and running, get your driver's license renewed, make sure your car insurance is up to date. And, you know, ultimately pay your taxes. And when I when I set out to do that, I realized that the IRS wanted a significantly more, uh, a larger sum of money from me than, than I was prepared to pay them. And when we dug into it a bit, a lot of it had to do with late penalties, non-payment uh, fines, and interest that had been incurred while I was locked up. And I said, well, wait a minute, this is not fair. So we, we really tried to dig into it with accountants, financial advisors, members of Congress, people at the State Department. And ultimately, I was able to get them down to a few thousand dollars. It was about $6,000, though, that the IRS said, look, we just don't have an internal code to absolve you of, of these interest charges. And what I found out was that people who are 
uh, deemed hostages. Uh, so, you know, someone who's taken by a non-state actor like ISIS or Boko Haram, the State Department can notify the IRS and penalties are paused. That has not been the case for people who are wrongfully detained by foreign governments. And look, there are thousands of Americans who are detained by governments around the world on legitimate charges, you know, maybe a drunk driving or domestic violence or petty theft, something like that. But someone like myself who was being old simply because I'm American and being used as leverage against the U.S. government, uh, we're a smaller number of people. And every one of us who comes home deals with the same issue. I'm just fortunate that I have a pretty big platform here at the Washington Post. And because I live here in Washington, D.C., uh, I'm often in the same place as legislators. And uh, I happened to bring this up with Senator Kuntz in a conversation we were having a couple of years ago, and he was shocked to learn that this was the case. And he committed to to doing something about it. And here we are almost two years later, and that legislation is uh, has been introduced and hopefully will pass easily, hopefully pass unanimously, because I don't think anybody should, uh, should be opposed to this. Uh, you would hope not. I mean, one of the reasons we did want to talk to you, as well as getting into your own extraordinary story, was, of course, the fact that it was it was brought back to mind by the plight of Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter who is currently imprisoned in Russia. How does it feel for you now when you read about a story like that, which has such obvious echoes of your own? So the truth is, since I was released from Iran in 2016. Yeah, I've dedicated a lot of my reporting time to, to telling these stories, um, whether it's somebody who's detained in Iran or Russia, China, Venezuela. There are very clear similarities in the circumstances, but also how they get covered in our media, right? Usually there's a headline, you know, to the effect that, you know, such and such person has been arrested in uh, in Iran or in Russia and is accused of espionage. Well, that's not really the story, right? The, the story is another American has been taken hostage by an authoritarian state that uses the pretense of rule of law to abuse our fellow citizen. That's the story, right? And I set out back in 2018 when I came back to full-time work at the Washington Post to really tell those stories and make a clear point that, that these folks, like myself, are hostages of adversarial states. That's all we are and, okay. uh, and should be known as such to the public. So when I heard about Evan Gershkovich's arrest, literally the first thing I did was reach out to people I know at the Wall Street Journal and people I know who had relationships with top leadership at the Wall Street Journal to say, hey, I'm here to help however I can. I did that without the permission of my publishers and editors here at, at the Washington Post, knowing that they're as deeply committed to press freedom and protection of journalists around the world as I am. I've made the case very publicly and privately that the Post and the Journal and the New York Times, we can you know compete for scoops and, and stories all we want, but when it comes to the safety of our journalists, we're in this together, right? And I spent quite a lot of time speaking with people at all levels of the Wall Street Journal about how to approach this. And I have to say, I want to commend them, uh, but I also want to commend my colleagues here at The Post 
for the, the support that they gave my family and, and me in their efforts to bring me out and how we use that experience, that difficult experience to help have a new vocabulary around how we talk about these cases. And, you know, it's, it's hard earned, unfortunate uh, wisdom and knowledge that we've collected over these years. We might as well make it useful to our friends and competitors uh, at organizations like the Journal. How would you sum that knowledge up, though? What should have been learned from your case by newspaper publishers and by the US government or indeed the government of any other country that finds one of its citizens taken in these circumstances? Well, I mean, you know, there's a difficult series of choices that we have to make when covering countries like Russia, Iran or China. Do we want to have a presence in these places or not? And it's a risk. Everybody knows it's a risk. It's calculated risk. I made that risk calculation myself. Nobody forced me to go to Iran. To my knowledge, nobody at the Wall Street Journal forced Evan to go to Iran. You know, he went there of his own volition and was hired because he understood the place and had been reporting on it with great effect. So I think it's a conversation that we have to have. Can we hope to have reporters able to safely report from, from these places? But then also, you know, how do we share this news with the rest of the world when it happens. What's the line between telling the story of our imprisoned journalists and advocating for them? And should there be a line, right? And I think that that was something that the post management back in 2014, when I was arrested, um, it was a question that, that they had to mull over and, and decide how are we going to A, advocate for Jason's safe and speedy release and B, tell this news story. And very clear boundaries were, were set in place between different sections of the newsroom. Some people would, would advocate for me publicly. Some people would report on my cases. Some of the things that management learned in private discussions with the U.S. government was not shared with reporters, was unattributable. And you have to build that kind of unbreakable trust. And I think that the same goes with how the U.S. government approaches these cases with the families. For a long time, they would not share information with families about the, the pace or, or progress in negotiations for the release of Americans wrongfully detained or held hostage abroad. A few years ago, they finally realized, well, actually, you know what? You know, we should keep the families informed because there might be extra information that can be gleaned from, you know, information sharing with, with relatives of somebody who's being detained. And also, what family, knowing that information getting out might compromise the, the health and security of their loved one, you know, being held abroad, what family is going to divulge that information? None, right? So I think it's, it's, it's a work in progress. The U.S. government under President Biden has made this issue a priority. He declared a national emergency around uh, hostage taking last summer. And you don't do that to uh, just garner headlines or, uh, you know, scare people. The truth is, this is a problem that's getting worse. And it's affecting not only the U.S. government, it's affecting your government there in the U.K., a variety of European governments. And this is one instance where I would say that the U.S. is sort of far ahead of its friends and allies uh, across the pond. The U.K. government has been incredibly deficient in, in dealing with these cases won't talk to families, asks families to stay quiet, don't publicize these issues. You know, this is not a secret. When 
when someone like Evan Gershkovich or myself or Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe are taken by these governments and then our arrests is, are made public by the state propaganda uh, apparatus in these places, they are doing something that is designed to be outrageous and audacious, right? This is not a, a, a secret matter, right? And so I think um, keeping it quiet does a great disservice to these people who are being held. And so, you know, there's no guidebook or recipe about how to, to handle these things. But ultimately, you have to understand as, as the employer, as the loved one, as the friends of someone who is being held hostage by an, another government, what you're trying to do is get your home government to act on their behalf. So, you know, in this case, uh, you know, all of these efforts are designed to get President Joe Biden to do whatever he needs to, to bring Evan Gershkovitz home. And I would say, you know, a lot of people say, well, isn't that, you know, doing a deal, swapping prisoners, you know, lifting sanctions, doesn't this incentivize more hostage taking? That's the wrong question. The, the question should be, what's standing in the way from these governments doing it? It's not as though they think to themselves, oh, okay, we can get this, we're going to do it again. It's, oh, we can get away with this, so we're just going to keep doing it until we can. When you returned from your captivity and, and began to understand what had and had not been done on your behalf, whether by your employers or by your government, was there part of you that was angry in any way? Did you think that not enough had been done? I mean, I, I, I suspect uh, that in that position, the person who's in that position hopes that their photograph is on the front page of their newspaper every day while they're away, which is obviously somewhat impractical. But how did you feel once you understood what had or had not been done? While I was, was being held, my captors told me regularly in the early months when I had no way of knowing what was going on outside the prison walls, that nothing was being done, that they had reported that I was killed in a, a car accident and that nobody was doing anything on my behalf. Sometime later, while I was still there, I, I learned that not only had the Washington Post, you know, made clear that I had been detained, the Iranian judiciary confirmed that publicly within the first 24 hours of my arrest. I had you know, throughout the year and a half that I was held misgivings about what was being done and what wasn't being done, I couldn't have any knowledge of the behind-the-scenes negotiations that were happening. Those began in earnest about four months into my detention. They went on for 14 months until, you know, we were, we were ultimately released. But when I went back and, and kind of reported out the story, I interviewed you know, the people closest to me, my, my, my wife, uh, who was arrested with me and then ultimately released and, and allowed to remain free, but on house arrest. My mother, uh, who, you know, became a staunch advocate for me and came to Tehran and did not, uh, um, refuse to be silenced by, by Iranian authorities. And my big brother, who was here in the United States advocating for me. So I think, you know, what you need to have is a family who is, you know, in lockstep with each other with the, the purpose of, of getting you out and using whatever levers they can to, uh, to try and make that happen. I think the Washington Post, you know, learned a lot in, in the process and ultimately was my greatest advocate. If I took this laptop 
a few meters that way and walked around, we would see signs that say free Jason, you know, seven and a half years after my release, they're still up in the newsroom. And the U.S. government, I mean, I think when I asked uh, the lawyers that the Washington Post had hired to work on the Post's behalf in support of releasing me, and, you know, by the way, the, the Wall Street Journal has hired the same firm to handle Evan's case. And when I asked them, you know, how they thought the U.S. government, how the Obama administration handled the um, efforts to get me out, they said, well, we have to give them a passing grade because you're home now and you're free. And that doesn't happen for him. The time you were imprisoned, you were able, as I understand it, to be able to conduct some sort of marital relationship that they were weirdly accommodating about. But but nevertheless, was it in any way helpful knowing that at least your wife wasn't in the United States with the rest of your family? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I think, um, you know, when we were arrested, we were arrested together. We had no contact with each other for the first 35 days. Didn't know if she was alive or not. Um, and then we were allowed to see each other very briefly a handful of times before she was released on house arrest. And the fact that she was still in the country, able to visit me periodically, um, you know, she and my mother were the only people that I was able to, to see during that time. And without that, you know, those, those encounters were like oxygen, right? I would have drowned in the fear and the sorrow much sooner if, uh, if she wasn't there. It's another question that is prompted by, I guess, the parallel ordeal that, that Evan Gershkovich is going through. He, he would now, I think, be past the point of wondering whether or not this was going to be a thing. I think for any journalist who reports abroad, it's likelier than not that at some point you're going to get taken in by local law authority who wants a word with you about something. And, and there does come a point at which you start possibly stop thinking this will be quite a fun story to tell when I get back and start thinking this could actually be quite serious. Evan Gershkovich would obviously have realised that this is quite serious. What advice would you give him for, I guess, keeping his head straight while he tries to absorb the situation he's in? So I, I think he has um, more insight into what's happening uh, and being directed at him than I was able to, to glean. He, you know, he, I understand that he's able to send and receive letters that are translated into Russian so that, you know, the prison guards can read those. But, you know, he has a sophisticated understanding. He's seen other people put on the kind of fake trials that he's being put on right now. Uh, and if you look at the images of him in his first court appearance, you know, there's kind of a smug defiance on his face. And several people asked me, well, isn't that going to, you know, agitate and aggravate his captors? And I said, you know what, if it does, good, right? They deserve to be agitated and, and, and poked at. He knows that what he is facing is an absolute farce. And the reason that he is being held is that he's an American citizen working for a major American news organization. I understood that too. It took me longer to get to that point. But when I went on trial, I tried to comport myself in the same way. Head held high, nothing to hide. Not nothing, you know, there's no there there, as we say in the US, right? And so I, I think 
his understanding of his circumstances are pretty well developed. And, you know, I think the hard part is stealing yourself for what inevitably becomes a longer ordeal than anyone should have to endure who's not guilty of anything. When you think back to the period, though, and especially if you try to look at this from Iran's point of view, and you spoke earlier about how you were obviously being used as leverage at some level or another, but I just want to pick up on the farcical aspect of it, because there is this point when you're being interrogated and they're terrifically concerned about this whimsical Kickstarter project you've launched uh, with the idea of establishing an avocado farm, which they apparently believe is some sort of CIA plot. How big a concern do you think that actually genuinely was for them? I think for the morons who were tasked with interrogating me, it might have been a very genuine concern. But for their paymasters, for the people directing them, I think everybody was very clear on the fact that I hadn't done anything wrong. And building this case that would then be used in the public narratives in Iran state media. And later, after I was released, I don't know if you're aware of this, but they made a 30-episode television drama supposedly based on on the case uh, against me and all of my, my crimes. You know, it, it almost feels like, you know, my interrogation sessions were a Hollywood writer's room, you know, for a bad sitcom about taking hostages. Because it it is a thing that I have, not in circumstances anywhere near as dreadful as those, but when I have run up against myself, the various emissaries of, you know, all all tyrannies are, are absurd. So of obviously absurd tyrannies and just finding myself wondering, you can't possibly actually believe any of this, can you? I think that, you know, there is um, a deep streak of being paranoid about all things foreign in a lot of these countries. But to extrapolate that, you know, a Kickstarter project was somehow CIA code for some secret mission to undermine the Iranian regime seems a little bit extreme. And I think, you know, I saw many instances of this over the years, you know, trying to sow doubt and create confusion or distrust for anything foreign uh, is, is pretty standard practice in that part of the world. And it works. It works and it, it you know, it, it sort of preys on the naivete of, of the public. But I think when it came to, to my case, when some of these things were floated publicly, you know, the Iranian populace sort of said, enough is enough. This is fucking ridiculous. I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> I, I think it's appropriate in the circumstances because, I, I mean, I, I have spent in my entire life 36 hours in Tehran, but in that 36 hours, I did still manage to encounter a not small number of Iranians who were fully aware of the strange hall of mirrors in which they are living. So I'm wondering if you consider those, those two versions of Iran, um, I realise it's not that straightforward, but you have a lot of people who understand exactly the reality and a lot of other people who either don't or won't. But especially in light of the recent protests we've seen in Iran, how optimistic are you able to be about it? I'm optimistic in the sense that the rest of the world should now be able to plainly see that vast numbers of Iranians do not want to live under the yoke of Islamic repressive ideology. 
that they are not that different from us, that they have the same kind of not only hopes and dreams and aspirations, but enjoy the same popular culture that we do. Iran, for a very long time, was cut off from the rest of the world. And, you know, with the proliferation of satellite uh, television stations and the internet and social media, people are pretty well connected to the pulse of the rest of the world and they want to live like we do. And we should support them in, 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 in those goals. The unfortunate reality is that the Islamic Republic has control of all resources in the country and, 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 and levers of power, and they're not going to let go of them. But I do think that um, I'm optimistic that the Iranian people will end up with the kind of state that they want, a free, secular, open society. Uh, I just don't think it's coming as quickly as anyone would like. And just finally then, and this this may seem, I realise as I frame it in my head, like an extremely silly question, because I can't imagine you've often been happier than the day you left Iran, but is there anything about the country you miss, and, and would you like to go back? Oh, I, I miss it every single day. Um, not as much as my wife does. I mean, she was born and raised there and lived her entire life in that country before we were thrown out. And she still has a lot of family there. I still have a lot of family there. I still have friends there. I miss the the pace of life on the streets. I miss um, the the kind of closeness, you know, that you have with people out in public, people that you don't know. I mean, there is a willingness uh, for people to engage with each other. You know, it, it's, um, I miss it, the sense of being in a country that has existed in a similar form for 2,500 years, right? When you're in Iran, there's no doubt about where you are. It's a singular place, right? There's no other place like it. And I miss it intensely, yeah. And I will go back. It just won't be until these fuckers are gone. <laughs> uh, Jason Rezaian, thank you very much for joining me on the big interview on Monocle Radio. Jason's memoir, Prisoner, My 544 Days in an Iranian Prison, is available now. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Jack Dewars. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.